So after reading John 7, 1 to 10, which we just did, you may have a few questions in your mind. Among them, at a most basic level, just what's going on here. And secondly, what's the significance of this little exchange between Jesus and his brothers? Why is a conversation like this recorded for us in Holy Scripture? And does Jesus lie in this passage? Let's tackle that last question first, briefly. Does Jesus lie in this passage? In John chapter 7 and verse 8, Jesus says either, I am not going up to this feast, as the ESV has it, or perhaps he actually says, I am not yet going up to this feast. The manuscript tradition is actually divided along lines that is not entirely clear, or at least not indisputably clear, which is the correct reading. It's possible that it should say, I'm not yet going up to this feast, which obviously removes all difficulty. But even without the yet, there's no real issue here. As Jesus indicates that his not going up is a matter of timing and not a matter of principle. So he doesn't say, I will never go up to this feast. I would not dream of going up to this feast or anything like that. He says, I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. Evidently, Jesus wanted to go up discreetly. He didn't want to go up with his brothers, nor did he want to raise the expectations of his brothers that he would be going at all which he would do if he said, you guys go on up ahead, I'll follow you later. Obviously, they'd be looking out for him. So he says, essentially, I'm not going because the time is not right. But then when the time was right, he went. This is not a lie, but it's an issue. It's an instance, I think, of just discretion in speech and reservation in speech, which is not wrong. Not all of your business is everybody else's business. Just because you're a Christian and therefore, theoretically at least, a truth teller. And so it seems here that what Jesus is doing is using some discretion and some reservation in his speech, not leading his brothers to believe either that he's going to come with them right now or that they should keep their eyes peeled for him. But he wants to be able to go up on his own terms. Nothing wrong with answering questions discreetly and with some reserve. Anyway, to the more pressing questions. What is going on in this text? And what's the significance of this little exchange between Jesus and his brothers? Well, at a basic level, the brothers encourage Jesus to go to the feast with them. And the ostensible rationale of the brothers as to why Jesus should go up to the feast is simple. If Jesus wants to be popular, famous, big, a known entity, then he should make himself known to the masses and do the things that people are claiming he has done and the things that he purports to be able to do, he should do these things in the most public place, at center stage, in Jerusalem. This is evident from verses 3 and 4. Leave here and go to Judea, 
so that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. That's the sense of it. Were his brothers sincere in wanting him to succeed? Or were they poking fun at him? I tend to think that they were poking fun at him, actually. Because in verse 5, it says, For not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. In other words, they did say, Go do these things in Jerusalem if you really want to become popular. But they said these things because, for the very reason that they did not believe in him. So it seems to me that they were egging him on in the mean-spirited way that some people might egg somebody on to try hot sauce that's too spicy for them. Or the way that people might egg somebody on to try an athletic feat that's too difficult for them. Or the way that people might egg somebody on to go talk to a girl that he likes without telling him that he has lettuce stuck between his two front teeth. Right? We all know, we can all think of examples of these sorts of situations and the type of attitude that prompts these sorts of situations. It seems to me, from this text, that Jesus' brothers wanted to see the spectacle as Jesus crashes and burns, so to speak. I don't think that they realized the level of hostilities toward Jesus at this point. We read in verse 1 that Jesus would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. I'm not suggesting that Jesus' brothers consciously wanted Jesus to die. But it does seem from verse 5 that their suggestion to go up was not sincere, but that they were somewhat disingenuous and motivated basically by a desire to maybe have a chuckle at Jesus' expense as he goes to Jerusalem tries to put himself forward as some kind of a religious leader and inevitably, in their minds, falls flat on his face for they did not believe in him. And maybe even that would put an end to Jesus' grandiose claims and they could kind of move on with a normal life without this awkward situation of having a brother who claims to be the savior of the world. It seems to me that something like this was behind this desire. So how does Jesus answer? Jesus answers in a way that presents two differences between him and his brothers. And by recording this exchange, John is here using Jesus' brothers as what they might call in in literature a foil, a dramatic foil, or a contrast. In order to bring out the nature of Jesus' person and work by way of that contrast. And so you see how good a good guy is by having a dramatic foil for him in a bad, evil character. And the good guy is so unlike the evil guy that you see the good guy's good attributes more clearly. This is what a foil is, or a contrast. And that's what seems to be happening here in this passage. The brothers serve in this section of narrative as a foil for Jesus, in order that we might understand who Jesus is more clearly. And here are the two primary differences between Jesus and his brothers that we see in this passage. The first is that Jesus has unique responsibilities as the Messiah, in contrast to his brothers who are not Messiahs. The second is that the world hates Jesus, but does not, and in fact cannot, 
hate his brothers. These are two differences that we see in this passage. So let's look at each in turn, beginning with the first. Look at verse 6. My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Contrast. The first contrast that Jesus draws between himself and his brothers is that his time is governed by a peculiar mandate in a way that theirs is not. And of course, this is because Jesus is the Messiah and they are not Messiahs. As ordinary Jews, they could make the trek to Jerusalem whenever they wanted. It was not required that their timing be precise in any way. If I can put it this way, God didn't care whether they went on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever. Whenever they want to go, go. Your time is always here. When Jesus says, my time has not yet come, he's implying that there is a precision to his mandate, which exceeds theirs as ordinary Jews. In other words, God does care whether Jesus goes on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever. This extra level of precision is tied to Jesus' mandate as the Messiah. See, the Jews had to keep God's law, His revealed will. That's it. Jesus not only had to keep God's law, His revealed will... But Jesus had to do many additional things that were not required of ordinary Jews and are not required of Christians today. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Fasting 40 days in the wilderness. We read that Jesus was driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit to fast for 40 days. It was God's plan and purpose for Jesus that He fast for 40 days in the wilderness. That's not God's law. We don't have to do that. We're not bound by that. Another thing, dying on the cross to save people from sin. Again, that's not God's law. We don't have to go die on a cross to save people from sin. But as the Messiah, that was an additional duty that Jesus had. Here's another example here in this passage. Going up to Jerusalem for this particular feast... At a precise time. That was an additional duty that Jesus had, which his brothers did not have. As ordinary Jews, their time was always here. They could go whenever. They're not bound to a precise time. But as the Messiah, Jesus had to operate with a peculiar mandate and do more than was required of the ordinary Jew and do exactly what the Father had sent him to do what the Father communicated to him that he was precisely to do as the Messiah. God had a plan for the Messiah specifically. Duties that belonged to him alone, whether to fulfill prophecies unique to him, to accomplish tasks unique to him, or for whatever other reason, God had a plan for the Messiah specifically. That involves specific additional things for his life. And Jesus was bound to all these additional unique responsibilities. In addition to the precepts of God's law. Which were binding on other men also. 
So one way that Jesus is different from his brothers is that he is the Messiah. Unlike them, they are not Messiahs. And therefore, Jesus has unique responsibilities that they do not have. Your time is always here, but my time has not yet come. So I'm not going to the feast just yet, implicitly. Another way that Jesus was different from his brothers is that the world hates Jesus, but does not and cannot hate his brothers. This is in verse 7. The world cannot hate you, Jesus says to his brothers. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Since Jesus' brothers did not believe in him, according to verse 5, they remain part of the world. And by way of reminder, in John's Gospel, when we read the word world, we are not to think of every person without exception. We are not to think of the physical earth and sky, but rather something like the ungodly culture of mankind, or the ungodly society of mankind. I tried to source the quote, which I'm sure I mentioned in preaching earlier in John, but for some reason I couldn't find it. Something, one of the commentators says something like, mankind organized together without reference to God. This is the world. It's this system, this uh, collection of people who have essentially, as Psalm 2 says, gathered themselves together against the Lord and against His anointed. The, the unbelieving world. This is what is meant by the world in John. And as unbelievers, Jesus' brothers are part of that culture. Jesus' brothers are part of that society. They are part of that system. And so the world does not and cannot hate them. A lion cannot attack itself. A gun cannot shoot itself. The sea cannot drown itself. And the world cannot hate itself. By contrast, Jesus is not part of the world. See, this is not to deny His humanity. Jesus is fully human. This is not to deny His physicality. He became flesh. And dwelt among us. This is not to posit that he was like a hologram out of Star Trek or something with the appearance of a man but was not. When we say that Jesus is not part of the world, what we mean is he's not part of that system. He's not part of that society or that culture of the world which is unbelieving. And has organized itself together outside of the Lordship of Christ. And a lion can attack another. A gun can shoot another. The sea can drown or sink something external to it. And the world can, and in fact does, hate those who are not a part of it. And Jesus is not part of the world. In fact, Jesus testifies against the world... That its works are evil. And so, like a snitch who is hated by those he testifies against in court, 
Jesus is hated because he testifies against the world. Like somebody who was in a gang or in the mafia and comes out and names names and gives details about that system or that society or that culture he was in and incurs then the hatred of that system because he's no longer part of it. This is something like what's going on here in this passage. Jesus is not part of the world, but he actually testifies against the world. And so the world hates him. Without Jesus in the mix, it's business as usual for the world. Without Jesus in the mix, the sins the world commits are ignored, minimized, downplayed, or even justified by those who commit them. But when Jesus comes in the room, so to speak, and turns on the light, what looked clean in a dimly lit atmosphere appears as dirty as it actually is in proper lighting. As John 3.19 says, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That same idea is operative here in John chapter 7. The light has come into the world and the people hate that light because the light reveals their evil to be what it is. The light testifies against them that their works are evil. And so the people hate the light and they love the darkness. So Jesus is unlike his brothers. That's why John records this incident. It helps us to understand more clearly the nature of Jesus' person and work by way of contrast with his brothers. Jesus is unlike his brothers in two ways. The first way is is what? Jesus is the Messiah and his brothers are not. And secondly, the world hates Jesus because he is not part of of the ungodly society, culture, system that John calls the world. Whereas his brothers, as unbelievers, remain part of that ungodly culture, society, system that John calls the world. So what does all this mean for us? First, and in similarity to Jesus' brothers, we are not messiahs either. We are bound to God's law, given to all men everywhere, but we ought not to try to bear the extra weight of Messiahship, nor should we expect others to bear that weight. We should accept that Jesus is the only Savior of men. And none of the rest of us are. Not me, not you. Not the person sitting next to you in the pew. Not the person sitting behind you or in front of you. None of us are. Only Jesus. Look at this passage again. Jesus frees his brothers to go up to the feast whenever they like. Rather than binding them to the extra set of expectations that he himself was bound to as the Messiah. This 
I think is at least a theologically non-controversial idea, even if it's hard to practice sometimes. So I won't belabor the point, but suffice it to say, don't try to be the ultimate rescuer of others. Don't try to be the ultimate rescuer of others. I'm not saying don't try to help people. I'm not saying don't try to serve people. I'm not saying don't inconvenience yourself at times for the sake of others. But don't try to carry the weight that I have to save this person. I have to rescue this person. You can't. You are not the Messiah. And don't expect others to be your ultimate rescuer. I'm drowning. You have to save me. I'm sinking in my circumstances. You have to save me. I'm overwhelmed by my situation in life. You have to save me. Don't put that weight on others either. You are not the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. Who's the Messiah? Jesus. Jesus has a peculiar set of responsibilities as the Messiah that none of the rest of us have. So we are bound to God's law, which says things like, love your neighbor as yourself. We're bound to God's law, which says things like, don't just say to someone, go and be warm and well fed and do nothing to help him. But if you have the world's goods, you know, share, right? Help, help a brother out. Don't just tell him, go and be warm and well fed, right? So do your best to obey God's law. Love people, care for people, serve people. That is part of what we are bound to do. But you are not bound and I am not bound to be anyone's ultimate rescuer. So don't try to be that for others and don't expect others to be that for you. There is uniqueness to Jesus that must be acknowledged and must be recognized even as we live our lives in Christian community. You weren't sent by God to save your people from their sins. Jesus was. You weren't born of a virgin in Bethlehem to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus was. You weren't born under the law for the purpose of redeeming those who were under the law. Jesus was. You are not the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was. You didn't die bearing the penalty for sin on the cross. Jesus did. You didn't rise on the third day in victory over the grave. And you do not hold the keys to death and hell. Jesus did and does. And you will not make all things new. Jesus will. You are not the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Let the Messiah be the Messiah. And let Him bear that weight. You just do what God requires of you in His law and expect others to do only the same. We are like the brothers with respect to Messiahship. We are not Messiahs, but Jesus is. Second, however, we genuine Christians are like Jesus in that the world hates us too. We are like the brothers with respect to Messiahship. We are not Messiahs, but Jesus is. However, we genuine Christians are like Jesus 
with respect to the hatred of the world. Jesus actually says directly to his disciples in John chapter 15 and verse 19. The world hates you. And why does the world hate Jesus' disciples? In the same verse, John 15, 19, Jesus provides the explanation. If you were of the world, in other words, if you were part of that system, that culture, that society that organizes itself together outside of the Lordship of Christ in unbelief, if you were part, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of it, therefore the world hates you. And we'll deal with this concept more thoroughly when we get to John chapter 15. But there is a principle here. That if you belong to the world, the world doesn't hate you. cannot hate you. Just like the sea can't drown itself and a gun can't shoot itself. The world can't hate itself. But if you're not part of the world, the gun can shoot you and does. The sea can drown you and will. For now, suffice it to say that when we come to trust in Jesus, if I may extend the analogy I gave you earlier, we become like the family of a snitch. But you understand, when somebody comes out of a gang and testifies, it's not just them that's in trouble. It's their family. It's, it's a spouse or a girlfriend or whatever. Kids. Everybody's in trouble now. We become the objects of the same hatred as those as those who have also renounced our ties with our former life and are now prepared to testify against it in agreement with Jesus we who were once part of the world have now come out of it but are prepared to testify against everyone still in it You understand that's what happens when you become a Christian. You come out of the world and you stand then with Christ outside of the world, looking in, testifying that his works are evil. And so the world that hates Jesus because he's not part of that system also hates us because we're no longer part of that system. We are... No longer part of the world. We've been called out by God's word and spirit. We've been born again. We've been changed so that we're not like the world. We've been transferred from one kingdom to another so that we're no longer under the dominion of the world. And so we're no longer identified with the adversary of our souls who is called in First Peter a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But now we're identified with the Lamb of God. And so a lion can't attack itself, but it can attack a lamb. We are no longer identified with the gun, but now we're looking down the barrel. We are no longer identified with the sea, but we are like ships passing through the midst of it. So all of a sudden, coming to Christ Jesus, 
puts us with Jesus. Identified with Jesus outside the world. Testifying that the works of the world are evil. And so though the world does not and cannot hate itself and those who are in it, the world can and does hate those who are outside of it, who testify together with Jesus that his works are evil. And so, we may now be devoured, shot, drowned, or sunk, so to speak, by the world in a way that was impossible when we identified ourselves with the world. This is certainly true metaphorically, even now in the West, as we are ideologically and philosophically devoured, shot, drowned, sunk, and so forth. There is certainly ideological and and philosophical opposition, and, and you see it very clearly at times, just an unbridled hatred and despising of spiritual truth ideologically, philosophically. As ideas are exchanged, we're not welcome at the table. We, you may pose any kind of wild idea and everybody feels that that person should have a seat at the table. But you come and you pose biblical truth and no, no, no. <laughs> you don't even get a seat at the table. You, you find already that hatred at play in that respect, metaphorically. We're not literally being shot, devoured, sunk, drowned. But, listen, these things may become quite literal for us in the years ahead. I don't know. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. (laughs) But for many of our brethren in other parts of the world, these things are already literally true. There literally are, right now, in this world, people being devoured, shot, drowned, sunk, for being Christians. And so it's not just like, that could never happen. That can happen and does happen. And as societies become increasingly godless and hostile towards Christ and His people, these things do happen. And so it would behoove us to at least think about these things. And understand that as an aggressive secularism and and pluralism, and I say aggressive secularism and pluralism, because it's not enough, at least for the most extreme wing, that we would simply say, we don't agree, but let's just coexist. We must actually jump on board and sign on and espouse the same ideas. We're finding that things are moving increasingly that way in the West. It's already been like that for a long time in Canada. It's moving that way in the U.S. And we have obviously uh, seen in the past that the Caribbean tends to follow suit with what's going on. So it is possible that physically, as well as ideologically and philosophically, hatred and the attendant persecution may soon be the cost of identifying with Jesus. And so, in summary, this passage presents Jesus to us. 
as one who is different from us with respect to his messiahship. Jesus is the Messiah, and neither his brothers nor we are messiahs. However, this passage also presents Jesus to us as one whom the world hates because he's not part of the world. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we come to identify with him who is not part of the world. We leave the world and go to Jesus. We become informants against that life that we left, that society that we left, that family that we left. And so we actually incur the same hatred against us as we see is operant against Jesus in this passage. This is how this passage presents Jesus to us. As the Messiah who is hated by the world because he's not part of it and in fact testifies against it. We will never be the Messiah. But when we become Christians, we too will no longer be part of the world and we also will testify against it. Which means that we will be like Jesus in that respect. Unbeliever. Listen to what this passage says implicitly about your life. Your works are evil. Now you might say, well, they're not evil. I'm not as bad as some. I mean, I'm not actually in the mafia. Or I'm not actually in a gang. And, you know, Jesus testifies against though that's the world. I'm not in the world. I'm just in neutral territory, basically. I'm not yet with Jesus, but I'm not in the world. The scripture doesn't leave that open to us. Jesus says, you're either with me or against me. You're either with the world or against the world. That's how it works. And the world is lumped in altogether. Because without distinction between the crack addicted prostitute and the upstanding moralistic banker who disbelieves in the gospel... Without distinction, the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The scripture says, without distinction between these poles that we might think of as different kinds of people, the scripture says, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so we might sin differently, but we still sin. The only kind of life that is not sin is living for the glory of God, first of all, which involves your motives. And secondly, it involves complete conformity to God's law. That you do everything that God requires, without exception. And that you refrain from everything that God prohibits, without exception. Among which are, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so I think you can see that whatever end of the spectrum you're on in terms of unbelieving people, you are indicted by the scriptures as a sinner. You are part of the world. And Jesus, in the scripture, testifies that your works are evil. 
And as is my duty this morning to be a spokesman for God, I testify to you that your works are evil. And all we in this room who are Christians also testify to you that your works are evil. Don't miss that. This is what this passage says about the world and the way that the world is defined is unbelievers. But we don't say this in a mean-spirited way. We were once part of that same world. We would invite you, like us, to get out. Trust in Christ Jesus, who received sinners. Come to Him in repentance and faith, and find that you may be forgiven for your sins, however comparatively few or many, to whatever degree of severity you have strayed. Christ Jesus receives sinners. And so come. But make no mistake as you contemplate coming. To come to Christ in faith is to embrace a certain amount of rejection and hostility and distancing from people in your life who will remain in the world when you come out of it. Make no mistake that worldly people will become increasingly hostile to you as you first come to Christ Jesus and then as you grow in holiness and your life, your attitudes, your thinking, your words are conformed to the pattern of Scripture. There is a cost involved. Make no mistake, professing believer you who claim to be a Christian, that this is what the normal, genuine Christian life will look like. Hostility from the world. A genuine Christian cannot be loved unequivocally by the world. A genuine Christian cannot be loved unequivocally by the world. Jesus had instances and seasons and aspects of acceptance by the world, didn't he? There were times when Jesus was riding high on the tide of popular opinion. There were times when tax collectors and sinners liked to be around him. There were times when even Pharisees sought Jesus out to have a conversation, like for example, John 3 and Nicodemus. There were times when people esteemed Jesus somewhat in a positive way. And so there may be times, similarly, and aspects and seasons where you as a Christian enjoy some level of favor and approbation and perhaps even popularity in and from the world. But just as Jesus was ultimately rejected, just as Jesus was at the end of the day, not tolerated by the world. So it is with His people. The world can only love us so far, so much, in a certain way, to some degree, at some aspect. And you have to understand that at some point, Christian, 
If you are a genuine believer, identified with Christ, not part of the world, but testifying against the world that its works are evil, you need to understand that you will butt up against the hatred of the world. If you never have, that should be concerning to you. Because the only ones that the world does not hate is its own. So all of us should acknowledge that we are all different from Jesus with respect to his Messiahship. None of us are Messiahs. He is the Messiah. None of us are. However, some of us are like Jesus with respect to his relation to the world. And some of us are different from Jesus with respect to his relation to the world. Some of us are still part of the world, unbelieving, either openly non-Christian or else imposters. And yet some of us have been chosen out of the world, in Jesus' words, and have come to identify with the Christ who is hated by the world. The contrast drawn in this passage between Jesus and his brothers in this respect ought to help us consider how we are like Jesus and how we are unlike Jesus in these two respects. Where we may not identify with Jesus, namely in this case, his Messiahship, and where we ought to identify with Jesus, namely not being part of the world, but actually testifying against it, that his works are evil. Give careful consideration to these things. Are you the Messiah? No, that's an easy one. Does the world hate you as it hated Christ? The answer to this question, does the world hate you as the world hated Christ? The answer to this question is the answer to the question of whether you are a genuine Christian or not. The answer to this question is the answer to the question of whether you genuinely believe in Jesus or remain an unbeliever as his brothers in this passage were. Whether you are still part of the world or whether you have been called out. Give sober consideration to that question. 